Well, I am thankful for our music ministry team at this church, and I'm thankful for the God who gave them those gifts and their willingness to use them to serve us and to serve him. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we are going to look at verses 11 through 15 of that chapter. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide underneath the chairs in front of you, you can find that passage on page 1158. Once again, that's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15. And similarly to what Andy pointed out in the scripture reading, the first word in verse 11 is therefore, which of course means that Paul is building on what he just finished talking about in verses 1 through 10 of this chapter. And normally, in expositional preaching, this is not a problem because you would have just heard a sermon on those 10 verses last week. But as the associate pastor, I only preach in this service once every four to six weeks, something like that. So you have not recently heard what verses 1 through 10 say. But actually, it's even worse than that, because the last time that I preached in this service, we did not cover verses 1 through 10. We were in chapter 4. We're jumping over 10 verses, and the reason for that is because those are the verses that I preached to you on the weekend that I met most of you. Almost exactly one year ago, on October 30th, I preached 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, on my candidation weekend. And I do still have the notes from that passage. I thought about just preaching it again to see if anybody would notice, but not really. <laughs> Instead of doing that, I've decided to simply remind you, we'll take a few minutes here, remind you of the contents of verses one through 10 before moving on to the therefore in verse 11. Second Corinthians five, one through 10 is about confidence. The big idea from one year ago was that confidence enables ministry. When we have confidence in the promises of God, we are able to do ministry. The famous verses that end chapter 4 say that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. And then chapter 5 starts. And what is it that gives us the confidence needed to do ministry? Confidence to make disciples. Even though we are weak, even though we are suffering, the answer to what gives us confidence is the resurrection. When we are confident that this life is not all that there is, when we're confident that this decaying physical body is not all that there is, we are free from fear and anxiety and we're able to live with abandon for the sake of the gospel. That is why Paul goes into detail describing what the resurrection and the resurrection body will be like. What is that promise to believers? Look at verse 1 of chapter 5 when he says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Your body is like a tent, and winter is coming. Literally. A tent will not do. 
you need a house, a solid building. The difference between the coming resurrection body and your body is like the difference between a strong house and a tent. And it should be noted that the coming resurrection body is physical, not spiritual. It's more real, more solid than this body. It's a house versus a tent. And these verses can serve as an attack on the false teaching of Gnosticism. Now, if we have any church history nerds in the room today, you might know that Gnosticism proper was not was not around quite yet when this was written, not in the first century, uh, but the truth that this passage teaches proves that Gnosticism is false. Even though many of us might not even know what Gnosticism is, that's okay, uh, but it is still a danger to a biblical worldview. Sometimes Christians buy into it without knowing it. Gnosticism teaches that physical is bad and spiritual is good. Gnosticism promotes severity to the physical body so that we can tune in to spiritual realities that are all around us. A Christian with Gnostic tendencies would believe that we just need to submit to some external rules, denying our body, denying that the physical matters so that we can grow in sanctification because that can only happen in the spiritual realms. We need to detach ourselves from the physical to pursue the spiritual. Paul does not like this. This is not how the Bible talks about the relationship between the physical and the spiritual. Listen to what he says in the letter of Colossians. This won't be on the screen. You just have to listen to Colossians 2, starting in verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. That word is going to be important today, appearance. You have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence, creating extra rules about physical things that the Bible doesn't have, don't eat, don't touch, that does not cause growth in Christ-likeness, according to these verses. Believing that evil or badness is bound up in certain physical things is Gnosticism, and it's wrong because that belief doesn't lead to sanctification. The badness is inside you. It's not in the stuff. It's not in matter. It's in you. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You might be thinking, okay, Pastor Michael, calm down. There's no Gnostics in the building, right? It's going to be okay. I disagree. Well, I agree that it's going to be okay. I disagree. There probably are Gnostics in the building. I think we fall for this today. I think all of us, don't. we, we might not think enough about it. We still fall for this today. And let me show you how wired we are to look for badness in stuff. I'll show you that with an illustration that will probably make some of us uncomfortable. Are you ready? I will posit to you that a belief in bad words is Gnosticism. We'll be okay, I promise. I say that very carefully 
don't, don't assume the worst here. Listen to what I'm actually saying. There's no such thing as bad words. There are things you shouldn't say in certain contexts. That's not the same as a bad word. Characters in scripture that we look up to often used strong language. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, snakes, and whitewashed tombs. Ezekiel the prophet used vulgar sexual imagery to describe Israel's relationship with idols. Elijah used crude bathroom humor to mock the prophets of Baal. And Paul used an indecent, impolite illustration of filthy rags, for those of you who know what he meant by that, to describe what our good works are like in the eyes of God without Christ. Now, do I tell my three-year-old daughter to not say certain words? Of course. <laughs> not because they're bad words. I do that because they're inappropriate for the context. I'm veiling my speech even now in describing what the prophets in the Bible said because there's children here. I tell my daughter not to say the word stupid for the same reason that I don't let her use a knife. It's not because knives are bad. She doesn't have the wisdom to wield that word in the right context yet. One day, I hope she will join me in saying what Proverbs 12 says. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Gnosticism, which is probably a form of Platonism, it fails because bricks aren't only used to break windows. They can also be used to build buildings and also because some windows need to be broken. I know that's a complicated example, but here's the point. The physical world isn't bad. That's one of Paul's main points in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. The physical world isn't bad. The resurrection body is going to be physical and better than it is now. Sin and evil are not contained in physical stuff like food and words. It comes from our hearts. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 4 says, while we are in this tent or this body, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, not that we would be a spirit without a body, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We don't want to be free from this body and this world. We want Christ to redeem and resurrect them. We want to follow the pattern of Jesus that says pain now, joy later. Suffering now, glory later. Death now, resurrection later. We don't have to be afraid of pain or suffering or death because of the promised resurrection that we will partake in if we know Christ. And this gives great freedom to pursue the Christian life and disciple-making with abandon. I don't have to worry about missing out on any pleasure in this life because there's another life coming. I don't have to be anxious about my 401k or my retirement because I've got treasure waiting for me in the resurrection. I don't even need to worry about broken relationships because I'm a child of the king, a co-heir with Jesus, and that relationship matters far more than any other. Let's try to make it even more tangible. 
I can go to the mission field or help with a church plant because of the resurrection. I can turn down promotions that will take me away from my family or my church because of the resurrection. I can share the gospel with a coworker because of the resurrection. I can make sacrifices to provide my children with an education that will allow them to honor God with their life because of the resurrection. I can regularly contribute financially to the needs of the church because of the resurrection. I can spend my life serving in the church, even in retirement, because of the resurrection. I can spend time praying every day, even if it makes me less efficient with my time, because of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. But the passage doesn't end there. It shows us in verse 10 that the reason we need to be so urgently motivated for pleasing God in this life is because we will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ to answer him when he asks, what did you accomplish with everything that I gave you? What did you spend your life on? I gave you the Holy Spirit. I gave you my son. I gave you instructions in my word. What did you do for me? And this judgment isn't about salvation. It's about reward. It's about our fruitfulness as Christians. May our lives be lived in a way that we can look forward to that day rather than dread it. So now that we're caught up, we're ready for the therefore in verse 11. Let's look at our passage as it builds on this idea of what our lives should be about in light of the fact that we'll stand before God, in light of the fact that there's a resurrection coming. Verse 11 says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This passage tells us that we will stand before God. Since we will stand before God, we ought to be engaged in selfless ministry. But understand this, selflessness isn't about rejecting all pleasure. It's about pursuing the highest pleasure in the next life. Many of us, when we try to define selflessness, we would say things like denying yourself and putting others before you, putting yourself last, and that's a good start. We see Paul talking that way even in verse 13 of our passage when he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. He's not actually saying in that verse that he might be crazy, but if so, he's crazy for Jesus. That's not his point. He's saying that no matter what we're doing, it's for God and it's for you. It's not for ourselves. He's defending himself, remember, from people who are attacking his motives. He's saying everything I do is for you and for God. It's not for me. But it should be said that Christian selflessness, while it involves this self-denial that verse 13 describes, it would be better 
described as temporary self-denial for a purpose. Christian selflessness recognizes that God's glory and our own good are intertwined so that when we pursue God's glory, we are also pursuing our own joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the action that brings God glory in any given situation is also the action that is best for you in the long run? Why would God be forbidding actions that are good for us? Like when, when God told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit, was it for him or for them? It was for them. What, what kind of God do you think we serve? Do you think he gets some kind of perverse pleasure by withholding good things from his children? Like the, like the rotten little boy teasing the dog with a treat and he never gives it to the dog? That's not God. Oh, if we would only believe, if we would only have faith that when God is asking us to be selfless, when he asks us to deny ourselves, he's doing that so that we can get something better later. Christian selflessness follows the pattern of Jesus who denied himself and took up his cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. His selflessness has the long-term eternal perspective in mind, and that eternal perspective does include our own good and our own joy. The big idea today is that the gospel enables selfless ministry. I know I define words a lot up here. That's, that's because words are important. They matter. I just defined selflessness. I'm about to define another word, and it's ministry. Let's not forget that ministry in this context is not pastoral ministry. It's not overseas missionary work or Christian schooling or feeding the poor. Those may be examples of ministry, but don't miss the big picture. Ministry as we are talking about it, is the normal life of disciple-making that the New Testament expects of every Christian. The New Testament expects every Christian to be fully bought into a life of making disciples, walking with God and helping others do the same, walking through the four directions. I'm not in ministry any more than you are just because I'm a pastor. I just have a unique role of teaching and equipping we're all in ministry together. We've got the same mission of glorifying God by making disciples in a community of grace. Those of us who are saved are all in ministry together. And we're going to look at three qualities of selfless ministry from these five verses so that we can evaluate if we are living selflessly or not, and if not, so that we can make course corrections to get back onto the path of selflessness. And the first quality of gospel-enabled selfless ministry is that it values truth over appearance. This comes from verses 11 and 12. Selfless ministry doesn't always look selfless from the outside. What do I mean by that? I mean that appearances deceive sometimes. There are times when a person's life and ministry looks really attractive from the outside, and those observing it, though, don't see the blood, sweat, and tears that happen in the background, or maybe they just happened in the past, but it's not always seen 
There are also times when a ministry looks bad from the outside, maybe even corrupt, and it's easy to be critical of those people. But those appearances also don't always reflect reality. Maybe the outsider doesn't take into account long-term fruit or other areas of responsibility that that person may have. But if all this is true, it means that sometimes in order to accomplish selfless ministry, you may have to do some stuff that could be interpreted as selfish by a scoffer. Do you see that? Sometimes in order to do the thing that is actually selfless, you may have to make an unpopular decision. You may have to open yourself up for accusation and criticism. That's what Paul is dealing with in this letter. You remember the complaint against Paul in chapter 1? Why didn't you visit us, Paul? You said you were going to visit us. Are you a liar? And Paul says, no, I didn't visit you to spare you. It was for your own good. It looked selfish from the outside, but it wasn't really. It was motivated by love to make that decision. Appearances can deceive. Look at verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Two things to notice here. Selfless ministry isn't afraid to be seen. The word manifest in verse 11 indicates that. Paul here is hoping that the Corinthians discern his true desire for ministry. He says, I hope that we are made manifest in your conscience. He's not timid or shy about it because it's not arrogant to proclaim the word with authority. The word has authority. It's arrogant, arrogant to proclaim your own words, your own opinions. He's not afraid to be seen as long as he is a vehicle for the truth of Scripture. You might think, well, who, who's afraid to be seen? I have an anecdote from my childhood, a decision that I saw a truly godly man make that even as a kid I had some problems with and some questions about. Our little church was without a pastor. We were struggling to fill the pulpit on Sundays. And I remember this godly man in our congregation being asked if he would be willing to preach occasionally during the pastoral search. And he said, no. Now, I'm not that man's judge. And I'm not even claiming to know whether or not he should have said yes. That's the whole point. Appearances can deceive. But what my young eyes saw at that time was a godly, capable man refusing to help his church in a time of need. Should that be lifted up as an example of humility? We don't know. <laughs> We're on the outside. But a truly selfish person will not be motivated, a truly selfless person will not be motivated by this desire to do exactly what they imagined their life would look like. I just never imagined myself preaching on Sunday. Well, that's no reason to not do it if there's a need for it. Let me say something to this church family. When you get asked to do something in this church and you refuse on the grounds of, I've just never seen myself doing something like that, or, or I'd rather serve in the background somewhere, that may be the right decision. Nobody is suited for every ministry, and that's fine. But if the ministry, if your ministry is being requested, 
by someone with authority over you, even if it's something unexpected, you should probably give it a chance. You're being asked for a reason. Selfless ministry isn't afraid to be seen. It doesn't insist on its own way. Here's the other thing. Selfless ministry serves others without fearing others. Verse 12 says, We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. As Paul was fighting for the loyalty of the Corinthians, he was advocating for himself over a group of people that he referred to as the super apostles, or the commentaries refer to them as the super apostles. He wants this church to hold fast to the gospel by remaining loyal to him and not following the false apostles that are more concerned with appearances than they are with truth. Sometimes when you make a right decision, it looks like a wrong decision to outsiders. And sometimes it is legitimate to turn down opportunities to minister. A yes to something is usually a no to something else. So if you were to ask me to come to your Bible study that goes from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., seven nights a week, I'm going to say no, because that is time when I'm with my family, right? It's no virtue to neglect them even for your sake. I'm here to serve you, but I don't answer to you in that way. There are some ways that I'm accountable to you, but ultimately I and all of you are answering to God. I fear him, I serve you. We all fear God as we serve each other. Now, I've said two different things. I've said, say yes to ministry opportunities and say no to ministry opportunities. How do we know when to do which? It requires wisdom and it requires a clear sense of what God has called you to do. God has designed you to accomplish specific tasks for him. And you might ask, how can I figure out what that is? Well, part of that is easy and part of that is hard. Part of that is easy. You're either a pastor or you're not a pastor. If you're not a pastor, don't take it upon yourself to make decisions that belong to the pastors. You're also either that kid's parent or you're not that kid's parent. If you're not that kid's parent, don't give them instruction or counsel that the parent wouldn't approve of. Don't exercise authority over children that has not been delegated to you by their parents. But if you are a parent, don't hand off the task of discipleship to the children's ministry. Sunday school and children's church and Awana are not tasked with bringing up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's your job. Here's another easy one. You're, you're either a man or a woman. The Bible clearly outlines that there are not only a difference in roles between men and women, but there's also a difference in their natures. So that it is fitting for men to do certain things that it would not be fitting for women to do. And it's fitting for women to do certain things that a man should not do. Once again, listen carefully to what I'm actually saying here. I didn't say that women can't do things as well as men or that men are bad at certain things that women excel in. We could talk about that too as a different topic, what I'm saying is it is fitting 
for men and women to do things that are in accordance with their God-given nature. You can use a big wrench to pound in a nail. It can be done. The wrench can do that. But that's not what the wrench was made for. And when you stop trying to force the wrench to do this thing that it wasn't made for, and instead you use it to accomplish its purpose, man, that wrench can get the job done. For a church to be healthy, it needs masculine men and feminine women leaning into and loving their God-given nature. I hope you're not uncomfortable yet because these are the easy ones pastor or not, parent or not, man or woman. But part of this is not as easy. Because how does a man decide whether to lean into his gifts of teaching or his gifts of service? Or how does a young mother decide whether she should join a Bible study or teach a Bible study or have lots of families over for dinner or disciple one person for six months, or pursue a counseling certification, or visit shut-ins and widows, or adopt a child, how do you decide? All of these are good, but you can't do all of them. You have to pick a direction to lean. And really what you're looking for, just to give a rough summary, is the intersection of three things. Your ability, your desire, and your opportunity. The intersection of those three aspects is where you want to serve. Are you good at something? Do you enjoy it? And is there an open door? If all three are are yes, that's a great ministry for you. Now this little diagram doesn't mean that if you can't find something that checks off all three boxes, then you're free from serving. That's not the point. It's just illustrating the ideal thing that we're looking for. And a lot more could be said about this relationship between ability, desire, and opportunity, but it will actually be covered in a little bit more detail tonight because tonight in the evening service, we're going to start a two-part mini-series called Lifting by Lowering, and we're going to discuss uh, the truth that one of the ways we fulfill the mission of this church is by serving faithfully and selflessly in the church. And a big focus of this series will be looking at what the Bible says about spiritual gifts and how we are supposed to use them in the church. You're also going to get a taste, if you're here tonight and and two weeks from tonight, you'll get a taste of our children's and teens' ministry philosophy and the opportunities that are becoming available for you to serve in those areas. So if any of that is interesting to you, come back tonight. But in summary, what do I mean by selfless ministry valuing truth over appearance? I mean that it's not necessarily selfless to demand to serve behind the scenes. Selflessness is not afraid to be seen. And though we are serving others with our ministry, we're operating on the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. We serve others without fearing others. We fear the Lord only. May that be true. Quality number two is that selfless ministry is thankful ministry. Verses 14 and 15 of our passage say, for the love of Christ controls us. So right after verse 13, which talked about, uh, we talked about in the introduction where Paul says that everything he does is for the purpose of serving God and serving others. 
says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Another translation says that the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and for them was raised. I think most would agree that the clearest example of the selflessness of our Savior is the historical truth that he died for sinners. He was actually nailed to a piece of wood for you. Romans 5 says, while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As children of God and fellow heirs with Christ, this is our heritage, our family legacy to live up to. We don't need to overcomplicate the very simple message that verse 14 is saying. He showed his love for us by dying a gruesome death in our place. And we are controlled by that love and empowered by it. If you are unsure of your ability to live a selfless life of ministry, you need to meditate on the fact that you have a forerunner who gave up more than you could ever give up. What do I I mean? How did he give up more? He gave up more because he had more. He had an eternal relationship, perfect and unbroken, with the Father. And that relationship was severed on the cross for the sake of those who would trust his son. So if you have never come to Christ and placed your full faith in him for the salvation of your soul, if you're living a life that's dominated by fear and anxiety and selfishness, if you are in bondage to yourself and your sinful desires, come to Christ and be free. Ask him to forgive your sins. He will because he can, because Jesus paid for them on the cross and rose again. Share in his death by dying to your sins and share in his resurrection by living fearlessly and selflessly while we wait for him to return with our new life. Come to Christ and be free. Paul is writing to an audience of people who have done this. They have experienced forgiveness, but he wants them to know more about it. He wants them to know more about what Christ accomplished for them. He wants them to delight in the sacrificial story of the gospel so that they can live that sacrificial story for other people. Selfless ministry is thankful ministry. Hopefully we share that desire to live sacrificially for others. Lord willing, this group of people is so thankful for the gospel that we want to make sacrifices for them. Hopefully those of you that are members of this church don't see your involvement in the church as meaningless. Instead, I want you to believe that in every way that you support this ministry, be it giving or praying or working or teaching, you are supporting 
the mission of glorifying God by making disciples. I'm not saying that all of our ministries are perfect. I have the strange feeling that none of our ministries are perfect because we have people working in them. If you didn't notice, people are not perfect. We will have to make adjustments from time to time because there's two kinds of churches, churches that adjust and churches that die. But our doctrine doesn't change because God doesn't change. And our strategy changes because we want to do everything we can to fulfill the mission because we're so thankful for what Christ has done for us. All of our work should be pulling in the same direction toward the goal of God's glory and mature disciples. If we're going to pursue that goal in a selfless way, we have to be thankful. Complaining people are not thankful people. Your attitude about the weather matters. An author that I enjoy said that weather is the thing that that we are receiving most directly from the hand of God. What happens when we get weather that we don't like? Whining. I will say, though, Last weekend, Fall Family Festival, we had what some may call less than ideal weather for a Fall Family Festival, and I did not hear a single complaint from any of our people. So I do commend you for avoiding what would have been a terrible testimony at an outreach event. At the end of the day, a big part of selfless ministry is thankfulness to the Lord for being willing to die for us. We have a lot to thank him for. But selfless ministry has one more quality. It values truth over appearance. It's thankful. And lastly, selfless ministry persuades. Going backwards now, all the way to verse 11 again. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Given the fact that there's a resurrection body coming, and that we have to stand before God, Paul's main application is that we persuade men. We persuade men because there's a promised resurrection and because we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done. It's all right there in verses 1 through 10. Because of verses 1 through 10, we persuade men. Is that a description of your life and your ministry? Is your life persuasive? For many in this room, I think not. I think there are a lot of people who are way too comfortable with a lazy and apathetic approach to the Christian life. You want the social aspect of church. Maybe you want the approval of men. But when you are alone or when you have extra time or extra money, what you do with that manifests your true priorities, your true loves, and it has nothing to do with persuading men. I'm talking about the person who can't tell the difference between good works and legalism, because you were made for good works, and that's not legalistic. The lazy man will use legalism as the boogeyman. Every time they start to feel the Holy Spirit convicting them, for not working hard in their walk with Christ and their leadership of others. Well, I don't want to be legalistic, so I better back off. Are you persuading people with your life? By the way, the goal of persuading is not the same as the goal of convincing. When Paul says we persuade 
men. He's not saying that you should spend the rest of your days researching arguments on the internet so that you can stand on the street corner arguing with every passerby about abortion and transgenderism and evolution. You just got to convince them. No, you don't have to convince them. People don't reject Christianity because they aren't convinced of the truthfulness. People reject Christianity because Christianity is ugly and offensive to them. They are spiritually blind. And so-called Christians whose purpose and priorities don't look any different from the unbelieving world are part of the problem. One of the key verses for my life and my thinking is Matthew 5:16, which says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's not convincing someone of the truthfulness of Christianity. That's persuading people with the beauty of Christianity. Don't be a person who is making the Christian faith look ugly to an unbeliever. This has special relevance for those of us who are married because Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that one of the key purposes of your marriage is to model the relationship that Christ has with his church. As Christ willingly made sacrifices for his bride, taking responsibility for sins that he did not commit, so also husbands are called to make sacrifices for their wives and take responsibility for their spiritual state. It doesn't mean it's your fault, husbands. It means it's your responsibility. And as the church submits to Christ in everything, as Lord, as the head of the church, so also wives are supposed to submit to their husbands in everything as the head of the family. Isn't a marriage like this persuasive? Isn't it persuasive when a husband seeks to love his wife in this way and a wife seeks to submit to her husband in this way, both of them bringing honor to the other? When you live this way, you're offering a glimpse into the mind of the perfect creator. Let them see and be persuaded. I actually think persuade in verse 11 has some parallel ideas with the word control in verse 14. I'm not saying that they're the same word. They're not. But they do similar things. Just as we are controlled by the love of Christ that he showed us on the cross, just as that act of love controls and compels us to live selfless lives of ministry, so also are our lives supposed to be persuasive and compelling to those who see them. This obviously doesn't only happen in marriage. In whatever way the gospel affects you, you should seek to make that visible to people. That's why the sharing of testimonies is so powerful. A good testimony says, I used to be this and now I am this and it's all because of the gospel. It's all because of what Jesus did. Another way that we can be persuasive with our lives is to be strong and confident about the things that we know are true. Not our opinions, but the things from scripture that we know. I bring up strength and confidence as an example because that is exactly what Paul is doing in this passage and in the letter of 2 Corinthians. We see it in verses 11 through 13 when he's responding to criticism by saying, 
God knows who we are and what we are doing. We hope you know too, but in reality, it doesn't matter because we know we're not being selfish. We know that we're doing things for God and for you. It isn't, or isn't it compelling? And isn't it persuasive when someone doesn't just immediately fold when just a little bit of pressure is put on them? Sometimes we can get caught on our heels though. Sometimes we're not ready for a gospel conversation and, and people will ask us something like, do you really believe the Bible? That, that book of stories? Do you really believe that? And we get tense, we get nervous. It's like, it's happening, it's an opportunity. But we respond with something like, yeah, I guess, or pretty much, yeah. And, and when they ask us why we can believe that or how we can believe it, we still tend to say something like, well, Jesus and, and God, they're good. And they love. And we're, we're bad, not good like Jesus. We're bad. Jesus is good. And Jesus died. Mm-hmm. Jesus died. Uh, he died for us. And that's, that's good. Even though we're, we're bad, that's good. And, and I believe in Jesus, you know. And that's our testimony. No, they don't know. (laughs) That's not going to persuade them. I've blown some opportunities by trying to convince people instead of trying to persuade people. Just declare the truth and live the truth, Christian. Of course I believe the Bible. I know the God who wrote it. I know him. He changed my life, and I can open the Bible and show you how he did that. And it should also be true that we can point to decisions that we have made in our life and give a biblical reason why we acted that way. How are you so patient with your kids when your coworker asks? Well, because God's really patient with me, and I want to model that love. It's not from me, it's from God. This is selfless ministry, and it's all enabled by the gospel. Selfless ministry values truth over appearance. It's thankful ministry, and it persuades because they see your life, and they're persuaded by the beauty of Christianity, not convinced by the truthfulness, and they want to give glory to our Father who is in heaven because of it. Let's pray. Father, make these three qualities evident in our lives. We confess our total dependence on you. We know that the only reason we have, uh, that we have, that we can change, the only reason that we can grow at being selfless is because you were selfless first. Help us to know and love the gospel. Help us to be changed by it and ready to persuade others with the way we live our lives. We ask this in your son's name.